Welcome to The Full English, the podcast that examines Englishness through the lens of food. I'm Lewis Bassett, and this is a special interview with the economist and podcaster, James Meadway. I initially interviewed James for an episode that I'm currently working on concerning whether high food prices make us angry, just as they did in the not-so-distant past. That's going to be a really excellent episode, so keep an ear out for that. In the meantime, I spoke to James about why food prices have risen so much, how inflation affects the rich and the poor differently, and the current wave of strikes affecting the UK. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it. And if you want to support us making episodes like these, then please become a subscriber over on patreon.com forward slash full English. James, thank you so much for coming on the Full English podcast. Let's get right down to it. The idea of a cost of living crisis is in the news a lot right now. Um, what do we mean by it and why is it in the news so much? Okay, so the, the issue with the cost of living crisis um, as it gets referred to, is, is in two parts, really, although it tends to be one that, that gets the most focus, which is that uh, inflation, in other words, the rate at which prices rise, has gone up. So in other words, prices are rising much faster now than they were um, a year ago or 18 months ago. Uh, and people have seen this. You just go to the shop, you just see that things are more expensive. So things that you need to buy, like food, or energy in particular, so energy, gas to heat home, that kind of thing. Things like this have gone up hugely uh, in the last year or so, in a way that, that we haven't seen for you know, 30, 40 years in this country at least. That's one part of it. The other bit that gets less attention um, in most of the reporting is that also like wages and salaries and benefits and pensions are actually quite low. So you've got prices rising and then you don't have the money that people earn from different sources is not keeping up with that. So wages at the minute in Britain are rising around about, it's only about 4 or 5%. But prices, in other words, inflation, on average is going up about 10%, just over 10%. So that means that most people are seeing a real squeeze on their income because the amount of money they have doesn't go as far as it used to. Everything costs more, but your wages, your salary, or your benefits, whatever it might be, has not gone up nearly as much. So that's the cost of living crisis. Mm. And when we when we talk about inflation, that's simply it. It's just the price of things increasing. Yeah, it's it's the average price. So it's a slightly like artificial thing. Most stuff you see in the shop won't simply go up by you know, what is it now ten point four percent. So that is meant to be an indicator of the typical price rise for the bunch of things that the average consumer would buy in the last month or so. Now, that's, again, most people aren't average, right? In fact, no one is, really. It's just a sort of mathematical or statistical invention. But it's meant to summarise what's happening to price rises as people would experience them. So the way that the Office of National Statistics, like every other big statistical agency, puts this together is they go out and look at the prices of lots and lots of different things, and they say, OK, in a given month, how much would the typical consumer buy of butter or baked beans or a car or whatever it might be? And obviously, lots of those things you don't actually buy most of the time, but it will be a fraction of it that you can take. Put all this together, that gives you the average price rise. The reason this matters about this average is that because no one's really the average, everybody buys different things, people have a different experience of inflation. In particular, if you are less well off, mm -hmm. you will be spending more of your income proportionately on essentials like food and heating your house and electricity than someone who's better off. 
they have more room to spend their additional money on things that aren't just what they need to keep alive. They can go out and spend it on other stuff as well. Mm. And those essentials are things that have really risen in price in the last 12, 18 months. So the poorer you are, the more you're feeling this cost of living crisis. So energy is obviously a big driver of um, overall inflation, but so is food. And could you talk specifically about food? Like how much have food prices changed? How much have they gone up recently? And in what way is that new historically? This is a, a really good question because the, the food, the increase in food prices right now is the thing that's really pushing inflation in general up. So if you think about what the average person is buying, a fair chunk of what they buy is food, food prices are rising more rapidly than inflation in general. So over the last year, the average price of food, and again, it's an average, so it's summarizing lots and lots of different things, it has gone up about 14.6%. So that food inflation is about the highest it's been for, for four decades, for the last sort of 40, 41 years or so. So th- there'll be people listening who, who you know, wouldn't have been born the last time inflation was, was this high. Um, so it's pretty unusual like that. It's also, because it's an average, what you find, and again, you've probably had this experience just going shopping, is that a bunch of things have risen much more rapidly in price than that. Uh, vegetable oil um, over the last year or so has really shot up. Potatoes, uh, eggs. I mean, people are seeing this actual shortage of eggs now. So the prices have shot up of these things. Lots of fairly basic stuff, actually. It's not like, you know, your price of caviar, I don't know what's happened to it. But I imagine it's not gone up as quite as much. We'll have to check as things that you actually need to buy on a more sort of daily or weekly basis, like butter, eggs, milk, this sort of thing. So again, it's the essentials. It's the stuff you can't avoid. And because it's stuff you can't really avoid, or it's very hard to substitute away from, you can't really go off and buy something else too easily. I mean, ultimately, you have to eat, you're going to have to spend some money on food. People really feel this squeeze very, very deeply. So the question is why? Like when I go to the supermarket, end up spending more money on bread, milk, cheese, whatever it is, why is that happening? There's, there's, a, there's a lot of things all coming together. I mean, if you, if you get into like sort of the economics chat about this, is the idea of this polycrisis. So it's lots of different crises all arriving at once. But so take it as red, there's a lot of instability in the world from different sources. Most of this stuff, the really big impacts we've seen in the last sort of 18 months or so are hitting on how we produce and sell and distribute and consume food. So if you take Britain, a lot of people get very excited about this. It's added a bit to inflation, a bit to the price of food is Brexit. Just the way the the deal is working out, the fact that it's much harder to trade with our major source of imported food, which is the European Union, has added a bit of a cost. But it's not just that, because actually the price of food is not just going up in Britain. The price of food is going up right the way across the world. It's going up in Europe as well. That's not because of Brexit. Um, The next bit to throw in is the really big impact of Russia invading Ukraine. If you take Russia and Ukraine together, these are about the two, in fact, they are the two largest exporters of grain, of wheat, of maize, of lots of fairly essential products on the planet. Mm. So when the war happens... Ukrainian harvests are completely disrupted. Right? This is, the country is now a war zone, so that's really damaged the harvest there. Exports of grain from Russia are disrupted in lots of different ways. There's sanctions. There's attempts at blockades in the Black Sea to get grain out. People might have seen there was a deal struck recently to make sure um, you know, things can still move, the, move through the Black Sea. So there's huge disruption on some really, really critical, like basic food products. And then stretching out a little bit further, you find that Russia is also a major supplier of fertilizer products. So the price of fertilizer has gone up, you know, like 45, 50% in the last year or so globally. And if the price of fertilizer has gone up, 
that's going to turn into how much it costs to grow your food. And that's going to turn into price of food going up because it's harder to grow the food. It's harder and more expensive. So it's all just big disruptions there. The other one to throw in, and the one that doesn't get quite enough attention as yet, but it's going to become more important, is extreme weather is getting worse. Climate change is a real thing. It's becoming harder to grow crops in various parts of the world. Um, Coffee, in the last sort of, again, 12, 18 months or so, the price of coffee has spiked because you find that harvests in Brazil have been damaged by this terrible combination of droughts in one part and then frosts in another part. So there's less coffee around. And it's just basic sort of market stuff here that when there's less of something around, but people still want it, the price is going to go up. And that's what you see happening. So you start to put all this together and it turns into a really big series of shocks to the system over the last 18 months, some of which may get better. Maybe the war in Ukraine resolves itself or something happens there. Uh, maybe we get a Brexit deal. The one that really ought to trouble people is that climate change isn't going to get any better from this point onwards. It's going to get harder to grow food in the future than it used to be. So the long-run expectation, if you look at this, may well be something like the price of food is just going to rise from here onwards. Hmm. Some people, when asked about inflation, uh, including really important people like the current governor of the Bank of England, will say, not necessarily that it's a major cause of inflation, but something to avoid, which is a wage price spiral. Can you explain what this is? And and why didn't you mention that in your um, reasons for why inflation is happening now? Well, because it's it's kind of bullshit. Like, There's no wage price spiral. Look, right now, um, inflation is... The average headline rate of inflation is 10.4%. Wages are going up, regular pay, excluding bonuses, it's around 5%. Mm-hmm. It's a, that sort of uh, zone. It's not the case that wages are so high that they're somehow magically pulling up prices. Because the theory in the wage price spiral is that wages go up, uh, and that means that all the people trying to sell things and employ people uh, have to pay more to their employees, so they have to put prices up. Mm-hmm. And that when prices go up, all their employees see the prices going up and demand more wages. right? And that, that's the wage price spiral that's supposed to kick in. But it's clearly not happening right now. Mm-hmm. Like just If you have wages are a long way behind what is happening to prices, then you know that you can't have a wage price spiral. right? It's obviously not happening that way around. What the Governor of the Bank of England and other people would say is something like, ah, but it might happen in the future. It might start to kick in somewhere down the line. They eventually, wages will rise so much and it will turn into this sort of problem. The bit that they tend to miss out on there is that, you know, if most of us, if all of us really, are having to pay higher prices for stuff and typically would find our wages aren't keeping up with that, mm-hmm. somebody else is making some money out of this situation. Right. If my wages haven't gone up, but the prices of most of the things I need to buy have gone up, somebody else is getting that extra money. And that's what you see in the huge increase in profits of the people who produce and supply those essential goods. I mean, the most obvious one is oil and gas. So BP, Shell, uh, Total, all the big producers globally, because the price of these things has shot up, they're making astronomical, record-breaking profits. I mean, billions upon billions of pounds out of this. You see something similar happening in agribusinesses. You see something similar, I mean, spreading out a bit further. You see something similar happening with with commodities traders and this sort of thing. And there's lots of people speculating. They gamble on price rises. They try and make money out of this. So they're doing okay. And that's the issue with inflation. It's not just that prices are going up and this is like a thing that's just happening. A price change means that people earn different amounts Mm. from that. Most of us, prices go up, don't do too well because it means our wages, our salaries, our pensions, benefits, all worth less. Somebody else who's selling the thing that's gone up in price, they might be doing okay. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see. So never mind the wage price spiral or even worrying about it turning up in the future. 
There's a real problem with basically profiteering, with companies making huge profits out of shortages and disruptions and all the rest of it that the rest of us have to pay for because the prices of those goods have shot up. Now, the government of the Bank of England never talks about this, right? And you don't get this story from the government. They say something like, oh, dear, we can't, st- we can't have a wage price spiral going up, never mind profits. Mm. We're going to have to put up interest rates. We're going to have to have a, a recession with unemployment so that workers are basically intimidated into not asking for pay rises. I mean, that's the blunt mechanism that the Bank of England is pushing towards now. And they'll say something like this. They'll admit that this is what they want to happen. It doesn't address the root cause of inflation. It certainly doesn't address the profits that are being made out of it. Was it the case in the past that wages did used to track or keep up with inflation? And if that's not the case now, as you seem to be saying, like, why isn't that happening now? Well, that's, that's the peculiarity of the last sort of last 18 months. But it's actually, if you take Britain in particular, which is a really sort of shot pieces economy in lots of different ways, the whole period from the financial crisis in 2008 is a period where mostly uh, wages and salaries, and especially benefits, have not kept up with even fairly low uh, levels of inflation. So even when inflation was like 2% or less, as it has been for most of the last decade, you'll find that wage rises were even below that. So in other words, people have steadily been getting worse off in what economists call real terms. In other words, allowing for price increases for some period of time. Mm. So entering this crisis of inflation, now you've already got a load of people who aren't particularly well off. Uh, and that's now the case, not just in, in Britain, it's a case across kind of the developed world. You see a similar pattern there. Historically, If you take, let's say, 200 years or so of industrial capitalism, for most of that period of time, wage rises, salary rises have been ahead of the rate of inflation. So people have become better off over time. And and that's sort of obvious, right? Clearly, people are better off now than they were 200 years ago. That reflects that process. Mm -hmm. It's a real breakdown um, if we're now looking at a period where there's really quite dramatic worsenings of most people's standard of living because of this rise of inflation. Historically, when inflation has been somewhat higher, so think about the 50s, 60s, 70s, you would also expect to have, especially in Britain, but it applies again across Europe, across North America, you'd also expect to have trade unions that were, um, you know, you'd have by 1979, about half of the, the workforce in Britain was in a trade union. Collective bargaining, in other words, agreements between the workforce and an employer uh, covered a much bigger spread. And, you know, it'd be up to like 75% or so of people in work. So, so everybody had some form of collective agreement, mm-hmm. some form of collective protection. And if inflation was a bit higher, they did have a mechanism to go out and say, you need to pay us more. You know, so sometimes when you wage price spiral story, people have in their heads, oh, it's like the 1970s, everyone's in a really powerful trade union that can just go out and demand more money. Most people at work, one, aren't in a trade union, and two, good luck to you if you just go off to your boss and say, you know, inflation's 10%, can I have a 10% pay rise? And it's not it's not how the world works. It's not very specifically how Britain today works, because we have weak trade unions as a rule. They're a fraction, uh, a fragment uh, in terms of representation, what they used to be. I mean, you know, in the private sector, it's down to well, down to about 12% of workers are in a trade union. Take workers overall, including the public sector, it's sort of 20%, 25%, that kind of level. So it's a fraction of what it used to be. Workers don't have that bargaining power that once upon a time they might have done. Um, and that's a real problem if you have high inflation, because it means that suddenly you don't have a protection. Uh, if you have a government that says, well, we can't, we're not going to do anything about this, our response is via the Bank of England to put up interest rates, so we want more unemployment. That's not a protection against inflation. That means that you're going to have a recession, which we're going to hit next year, possibly already in one, 
and really high inflation. And what are you what are you left to do? I mean, this is you, know, you can see why people are going on strike now because it's a protection against this because nobody else is going to do it. What happened to uh, trade unions? I mean, some people know this is kind of obvious. The snapshot is Margaret Thatcher happened, but could you give a rough outline? Well, that's that's a, a pretty good you know, this is a pretty good two sentence two word even uh, summary of what 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 took place. The the bigger picture, I suppose, is, is something like, and you can see it actually in the, in the strike uh, statistics. If you look at like how many strikes were taking place, how many days lost uh, due to strikes in every year from the Second World War, basically from the Second World War until 1990, uh, you always had at least 1.4 million strikes, strike days in Britain every single year, at least. After 1990, you didn't have a single year where there was more than 1.4 million. So for all the fuss we have now, this is a really low base of trade union activity. And the break happens in 1990. And it's a combination of, I would say, a kind of uh, a legal uh, change. There was a deliberate pushback on trade unions' uh, rights to make what Tony Blair, I remember, said in 1997, to give Britain the most restrictive trade union laws in the Western world, that these were tight regulations about what trade unions could do when they went on strike, who they could represent, all this kind of farrago that you get if you want to have an official strike, you have to have a ballot paper, you're not allowed to vote electronically, it has to go to a registered union member, you have to confirm that everyone's a registered union member. It's all set up to weaken, undermine the capacity of trade unions, which means people in work to organise collectively. So that's a legal offensive there. There's a kind of uh, a political offensive uh, from the 1980s, really beginning before that, but political offensive on, uh, from that point onwards to sort of break up solidarity and the capacity of trade unions to work with each other, which Thatcher quite systematically applied, you know, quite deliberately um, taking on, isolating and defeating separate groups of workers and breaking that kind of basic trade union solidarity that was a source of trade union strength. So, you know, so, so you should pay some workers off. I mean, Coming coming into office in her first year, 1979, she offered a 25% pay rise to public sector workers because she didn't want another winter of discontent, which people are talking about a lot at the minute. Huge strikes at the end of the 1970s. Paid off public sector workers, immediately went on to the offensive against steel workers uh, to try and break their union. And then notoriously onto the, onto the miners a few years later. So that's there. And then there's changes in, in just, and this is the really big one, in just how industry and, and how the economy operates. That you go from a world in which you have yeah, lots and lots of people employed, lots more than now employed in manufacturing industry, frequently unionised to those factories being closed, to deindustrialization happening, to loss of those unionised jobs. Typically to elsewhere in the world, by the way. It's not like manufacturing isn't happening, but they're not here in Britain. And their replacement by a bunch of insecure, less well-paid, certainly not unionised work in the service sector. So that's the big sort of economic shift that happens. Stack all this up, and the picture you get is basically that people in work have very few protections, really, compared to what they used to have, and very limited capacity to organise themselves and to push back against their employers. Um, it might be the case now that trade union disputes are relatively low historically, in fact, like historically very, very low. But it's still the case that there are increasing numbers of strikes happening or planned to happen over this winter. Um, do you see those strikes as a good thing? Do you hope that they, the workers in those unions achieve their aims? And won't that be bad for inflation? Well, I hope they do achieve their aims. There's, there's no one else that's going to stick up for us at this point in time. If, if you're in work and your pay is not keeping up with inflation, the government's not going to care. Uh, the fact the government right now is saying, oh, we can't possibly pay people to keep up with inflation. Not our employees 
uh, nurses, uh, who else is out there? You know, there's a great long list, actually. So it's right the way across the public sector, civil servants in various parts of, of government, all sorts of people. We can't pay them enough to keep up with inflation. So the government's not going to do that. Um, your employer has few incentives to, to do this. There's no one else but potentially what collective organisation you can bring and to try and insist that in a world where inflation has risen, but profits have also risen, some of those profits should be turned back into, into pay so that you can deal with this inflation we're now experiencing. Right? So it's good if they win, and I hope they do win, and I hope that every single worker out there currently on strike wins their dispute and gets what they're asking for. Will it have an impact on inflation? No, it won't. It won't if, if we also make sure that we take the opportunity to squeeze back on some of those large profits that are being made out there. There are profitable companies uh, all over the place that, you know, I'm thinking oil companies in particular. The oil workers have been striking over the summer. They've been wildcat strikes, not bothering with all the legal paraphernalia. Hugely profitable. Well, why shouldn't some of those profits turn back into paying people properly? More generally than that, the huge amounts of wealth that we built up out there, uh, especially during the pandemic, by the way, which was a bonus for billionaires. You know, there's a very good Oxfam report on this from six, eight months ago, looking at the impact of the pandemic, where you had these big disruptions, obviously, to like the whole economy, disruptions to essential services, essential production. And they reckon that because of these disruptions, because of the way money was distributed, because of how spending took place, you have this huge increase in wealth at the top of society. They say that 63 new food billionaires have been created, people who are billionaires because of their ownership over food systems during the pandemic. Now, that wealth is all still sitting there. We could do something about that. You want to pay nurses and teachers and everybody else properly, you tax that wealth and you start to pay them properly. That's what. That's the kind of attitude we ought to have in terms of inflation rather than this ridiculous because it isn't going to work thing of saying with the bank of england we have one thing we can do which is put up interest rates this will worsen unemployment and we hope it will worsen unemployment in order to further undermine workers ability to bargain and organize and fight for uh, a fair pay that's what they want to happen mm -hmm. this and now that may have perhaps some minor impact on inflation, but it's not going to do very much about Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine, which is a driver of inflation. Mm -hmm. uh, we pay nurses less in Britain, you know, if we want to do that. It's not going to change the price that you pay for gas you're buying from Qatar. Mm -hmm. Like These things don't work. So not only are you going to make like, people's lives more miserable, it's not actually going to deal with the kind of inflation we've got. The whole thing's nonsensical. So much better, much better to strike and to protest in these circumstances when all the other institutions are either saying we can't help you or doing things that are actively counterproductive. As we said, we've got relatively smaller numbers of workers in trade unions. Um, what then happens to the rest of us who see that the cost of living goes up, the cost of energy, but also in this case, what we're talking about now, the cost of food? Where does, where do, whether the sentiments around whether or not that's unjust or, or how people feel about that, where does that go? How does it have any kind of bottom-up political implications? Well, there's a really interesting example of this with, um, and I, I think it, it has a, it's had a political impact, which I, I think is, is underrated. Um, Keir Milburn has written about it, which is Don't Pay, Don't Pay UK over the summer, which, um, you know, with, with all sorts of people involved or at least 
saying that this was becoming a serious problem around uh, energy prices and household energy prices, which had gone up. I mean, the figures are incredible. That basically is double the average. Again, not average, but the average uh, household energy bill is now double what it was easily. Uh, you know, twelve months ago, it's an extraordinary increase in something that you cannot avoid spending money on. Like it is really hard to avoid heating your home in winter when you're looking at the kind of uh, temperatures that we're now facing. Uh, in the same way, it's really hard, even harder actually, to avoid eating. So there's a big um, campaign brewing around that uh, to say that simply, with I think the memory of the poll tax and the non-payment campaign, the poll tax in the 1990s, which did actually do for Margaret Thatcher in the end, um, around that idea of saying, we're not going to pay, we're not going to pay the increase. And I think it had the impact sufficiently like we know from leaked documents from the energy companies discussing with government that they were describing this problem as an existential threat to their business model. Mm. And the first thing Liz Trust did in a rather brief time in office was immediately say, OK, energy price guarantee, we're going to pay at the time £150 billion to sort of clop off the, the biggest biggest increases in the price of household energy bills. It's still a big increase. They're just not going to be quite as catastrophic as the forecast. Uh, so she did that, not because Liz Truss or any other Tories really feel like, you know, we're just going to be generous to people in some sense. They did it because of the political pressure, mm -hmm. the political pressure that was being applied to them. Now, that was lots and lots of people, whether or not they were in a trade union or whatever it might be, actually starting to have some sort of collective uh, power over what was happening in this situation. And it's quite a dramatic example. And by the way, the issue hasn't gone away. You know, that support has been reduced by Rishi Sunak. It's now going to run out in April. The forecast in April without that support is for a household energy bill to get up towards £6,000, which is an extraordinary increase. Now, my guess is the government will do something. They say they're going to do something. But you can start to apply the pressure to make sure they do a big, serious thing, not sort of the pissing about that they were doing uh, uh, before the energy price guarantee. So that's an example of what you might do. Where it gets more complicated, and I think it's an interesting question, this one, is what do you do about food price increases? Like there are obvious charitable uh, things that people can do and are doing because they have to. Like the shocking, I mean, the increase in food bank use over the last decade or so of austerity was already dramatic. It's gone through the roof recently. The food banks themselves are having a crisis because prices of food have gone up, so people are not so easily able to donate. And so they're simultaneously facing a big increase in demand and problems with their own supply of food to get to those people. So that's an obvious charitable sort of response to it. Where it gets interesting and difficult is like, what is the political response? Do we start to say something like, well, why don't you control the price of essential foods? The government could subsidise the price of butter or vegetable oils or something like this. There are governments around the world that do that. They're typically not, and if you take the big historical picture, it's typically not sort of richer developed countries like, like Britain that do this. India has food price controls and various essentials. Hungary in Europe actually has a few food price controls. They tend to be countries that do not have that long history of development and, you know, sort of rising wages and supermarkets and food distribution with lots and lots of choices that people can make. It tends not to look like that. But you can see the argument gaining traction and you can see how a protest campaign around some of these issues might start to, might start to push the government towards working like this. How would food price controls work? Would you would it require the government to subsidise producers? And where would that money come from? I assume you're going to say taxing taxing the rich. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the obvious one here is to say something like a very crude food price control, like any price control, is just say, okay, here is a legal limit on what you can sell this for. Yeah. Um, and to compensate for the fact that this was likely to be below the cost of your production or the cost of, if you're Tesco's or whoever, to sell the thing, it costs you more to buy whatever that food item is, eggs or milk or whatever, um, we will compensate you for it. I mean, that's how the energy price guarantee works. Mm-hmm. The energy price guarantee is the government saying, okay, you can't sell, uh, can't effectively sell energy above this level. Um, we know that you, gas supplier, have to buy wholesale gas at massively higher than this, so we'll just pay the difference. And it's a big, crude mechanism. It does mm. produce a result. You do have a cap at the other side, but it's kind of expensive. I think the one for Britain, looking ahead, because it's not just this immediate crisis in winter or the crisis of the war in Ukraine, um, it's also that climate change problem. Um, and that we have this, for instance, a real decline in, in self-sufficiency uh, of food consumption in Britain. So if you take the 1990s, lots of things happened in the 1990s, right? Early 1990s is a key period. 1990s is basically a peak of self-sufficiency. We, we have about 85% of the food we eat is actually produced in Britain. It's declined now to about 60%. So it's a real drop over that. Okay, it's three decades, but it's a drop. Now, once you don't have that self-sufficiency, you're suddenly exposed to what happens in the rest of the world in a big way. Because if there's a disruption to the grain you're buying from Ukraine, right, that isn't grain you have to hand. That's grain from over here. And there's a disruption. The price is going to go up. Mm-hmm. So there's a good case for relocalization. There's a good case for heavier investment in food and agriculture. You can start to see that the risks of profiteering in some of the sort of monopolized uh, consumer-facing bit of the industry. In other words, you have big supermarkets that really significantly control what and how we buy. There is a case of more government intervention there to sort of steer prices and set prices. You can start to build up a, a case for what this might look like, looking ahead, trying to deal with climate change, thinking about how we can produce food better without the sort of damages of industrial farming, but also protecting consumers and smaller farmers at the same time. There are ways that we can start to tease this out, probably over the next year, given that all the forecasts are that after bad harvest this year, next year's look worse, this is not going to be an issue that goes away. In, in Britain in one form, which is inflation and potentially people going hungry, but mostly it's inflation across the rest of the world. You're talking famine and potentially famine on a large scale. So there's a serious issue that we, we have to get our heads around. We have to develop the political campaigns that can start to do that. I think we've seen some examples of this in Britain over the energy price guarantee. We might start to see something like that with food. Um, I'll end on this final question, which is a little bit abstract, but what do you think it says about the kind of country that we live in, uh, in which people are struggling to heat their homes and put food on the table? Like what kind of country is the UK or England when you see that? You know what, Orwell, George Orwell had that line and it's slightly, in the usual way that he has, it's slightly sort of, it's not a bad way of summarising things, but it's not perfect, which is that, you know, England's a, like a family with the wrong people in charge. And it's it's like, it works like that. There's a lot of potential here for things to be better, much better. This is actually a rich country. Like people don't, in a way that people don't quite realise because most of us aren't that well off. It's just, it's a rich country with that wealth held in the hands of a very few people and a very few institutions. British corporations are, are sitting in their bank accounts on 900 billion pounds that they're not using. Like it's just money sitting there that we could put to use. There's an immense amount of resources and skills and all sorts of things we could do here to make a much, much better place. But it's so poorly run. And it's so poorly run by not just the people in charge right now, but a real sort of institutional failure that runs all the way through everything we do. 
like nothing really works as it should. Our food system doesn't work as it should. Our privatised energy system doesn't work as it should. Uh, Our transport system doesn't work as it should. It's years, decades of failure. So you want to change it. There is a potential to do that, but you have to be a bit more thorough and just like, oh, we'll change the, the, you know, a couple of Tory prime ministers. We'll we'll oscillate through a few more and see where we get to. It has to be much, much more fundamental than this. But there is a potential to do that. I think more and more people are realising that the problems we face are so serious. You can't just do a, you know, change whoever's in charge and that'll be fine. It has to be a real root and branch fundamental reform. James, that was a brilliant answer. Thank you so much for speaking to me. No worries. Thank you. That was James Meadway. Check out his weekly Straight to the Point podcast on economics by searching for Microdose. It's short, clear, and really, really worth listening to. That's Microdose with James Meadway. And please remember to share this show and keep an ear out for that future episode that I was mentioning at the beginning, which is about how high food prices have historically affected politics in England and how they're doing so again today. Music and the mixing of this episode comes from Forest DLG. I'm Lewis Bassett, and you've been listening to The Full English. <laughs>